If I were to go around the room this morning and ask <clears throat> how many of you have ever dealt with anxiety, imagine the, the amount of hands in the room that would go up would be substantial. If I were to ask how many of you still deal with on a daily, maybe, uh, maybe weekly, maybe even hourly basis, imagine the amount of hands that would go up would still be relatively high. Anxiety um, is something that, that comes to the mo even most even-killed uh, person at some point. According to, to, to most people, I think I, I would be fairly even-killed. Some, some of you who may know me maybe wouldn't think so, but I, I think I'm fairly steady um, in how I, I conduct my life. But seven years ago, I went through a situation that um, never expected. I've shared about this before, um, but it was my first ever bout of anxiety. And it stemmed uh, from the fact that I had gone to the doctor multiple times uh, through my last semester of college. I had gone to the doctor and I had talked to, to him and, and finally he said, we need to do some blood work for you because uh, these symptoms just kind of don't seem to be that good. So did some blood work. Um, what happened was his, the blood work came back and some of the parts of the blood work were really, really bad. And he, he said, you know what, I, I can't figure out what's going on. There's been several months of this. Your blood work keeps getting worse. I don't really know what, what you're dealing with. I've got to send you to a specialist. So I get sent to a specialist. The specialist then, um, I go up there to visit him. He sits down in a room. He looks over my blood work, looks over the notes from the other doctor. And he said, you know, he said, it could be multiple things that you're dealing with, but I think the diagnosis that you may have will at best leave you having to have treatment the rest of your life, or at worst, if we didn't catch it in time, you'll be dead in three years. That's not exactly what you want to hear a month after you graduated college. And you think that your career and your life is, is ahead of you. Um, for me, that was the first ever time in my life that I'd ever been in a situation that I personally couldn't fix, that there wasn't enough money you could borrow or ask for that would solve it. And I'm a problem solver, so I made it even worse because I went online to try to find solutions and to try to find what was going on. Anybody ever done that when you're sick? Yes. Any doctor or medical professional in here is shaking their head saying, don't do that. Well, that's what I did, and it made my anxiety even worse. You see, everybody deals with a little bit of worry. We heard about worry last week. Everybody deals with worry from time to time, but for the first time ever in my life, I was anxious. <clears throat> I was in a state of unrest, apprehension, dread, because I didn't know the outcome of the situation that I was in. Didn't know what it was going to be. Didn't know if it was going to leave me alive. Didn't know if it was going to leave me needing something the rest of my life. And it was the first ever time I began to deal with something called anxiety. See, anxiety causes you and I to overestimate negative aspects of a situation. And, and we overlook the positive and more reassuring aspects. That's what anxiety often does to us. 
Sometimes, however, anxiety, it comes out of nowhere. Maybe you've dealt with it before or you're dealing with it now, and you, you deal with anxiety, but you don't even know where it comes from. Maybe some of you are in here this morning, and you felt the exact feeling of dread, worry, negative stress, uneasiness, nervousness, but you know the situation. Maybe it's because of a, of a wayward child that you are burdened over. And you don't know what's going to happen in that situation, and you don't have any control over it. Or maybe you're wondering if your marriage will make it. You sit in here, and, and you don't know if it's going to make it through tomorrow or through next week. Or you're stressed because your job is more than you can handle, and you know you don't want to give it up because you don't know what kind of situation that's going to put your family in, and that has you stressed and anxious. Or maybe you're in angst over your future. You don't know what your future holds, and it just makes you anxious. You're worried that the mistakes that you once made have caused and forfeited your future, caused it to be ruined. Or maybe you're just sitting here this morning, and you have lost confidence that God is who he says he is and can do what he's promised to do. If any of those or more of those are you this morning, I'm glad you're here. Because this sermon, this text that, that is written to us is for you. If you go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at Philippians 4 as, as Betty has read for us. I want to show you a passage that God used powerfully in my life at a moment in time when anxiety got the best of me. And God still uses this passage even today as, as about every, every once in a while I deal with anxiety over something. I want to show you this passage. Today the, the title of the message is, is called Overcoming Anxiety. Overcoming Anxiety. Let me just say this. I'm glad that we have a God who wants to deal with our situation and help us in our day to day. That he doesn't just say, yeah, I know I created you and now I'm just going to leave you to figure it all out. But he's given us his perfect word to help us deal with what we go through. Because it's in Philippians that we find that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started years earlier. Paul had started the church at Philippi years earlier. And though he hopes to see them again, he knows this may be the last time that they ever hear from him. In his last writing, he gives several instructions that weren't only applicable to them, but also to us. And it's three, three commands today that we're to follow. They're each one word, so they should be somewhat easy to remember. And the first one is this, rejoice. <clears throat> rejoice. If you want to put in parentheses out beside it, you can put always. Or if you underline your Bible, rejoice always. Paul gives the Philippians the impossible-sounding task to rejoice always. It, it, it sounds impossible because he doesn't say rejoice sometimes, rejoice when you feel like it. He says rejoice always. So what is rejoice? To, to rejoice is to be glad and full of joy. To be glad and full of joy. Now, if you're like me, you read that, you hear that, and you say rejoice always. How can I be glad and full of joy all the time? Maybe, maybe Paul was in a good situation. Maybe uh, he was in a good place that he could, he could, he could say that. That's far from where he was at. The situation of the man who's writing this text from God that says rejoice always is, is far from even okay. He is, up to this point, he had been beaten. 
He had been mocked, he had been thrown out of cities, and he had just generally been treated poorly due to his faith in Christ. And now his circumstance was even worse. Now he is sitting in a prison, but not just any prison. He's sitting in the place called the Praetorium, which is right beside uh, the palace of Caesar. And it's where they keep some of the, the worst prisoners because those guys are guarded by some of the baddest guys in all of Rome because they view them as such a threat. That's where Paul was at. Not only is he in prison, but he's awaiting his trial. Or better yet, he's awaiting his sentencing. He's waiting to hear the words, convicted, punishable by death. He knows that any moment when the bars of that prison door come open, that he could, he could hear, yeah, you're going to die. Lest we think that he's sitting on the beach of the Mediterranean somewhere drinking a cold drink saying, come on guys, don't worry, be happy. That's not the situation Paul's in. He's not there. He's, he's in a cold jail cell with no allies. He's lonely and all he can hear is the whispers of his enemies talking about what may happen to him. Talk about anxiety. The man could have easily overestimated the negative aspects of his situation, but in the midst of all this, he says rejoice. So how can I rejoice? How did he rejoice? How can we do that? It all comes down to what we rejoice in and what we call rejoice. When you, th you hear the word rejoice, we think of the word joy. So for our sake this morning, joy is defined as contentment and satisfaction despite circumstances. We'll get into that in a moment. Contentment and satisfaction despite circumstances. Joy is not an emotion like happiness or, or sadness. It's, it's an attitude. See, emotions can change. You can be happy one day, you can be sad the next, but joy can, can stay and remain. But see, joy must be rooted in the truth of what you know, not in how you feel. You see, when your joy and your satisfaction is in something that changes, guess what's going to change as well? Your, your joy. But when your joy is, as Paul says, in the Lord, you know what? You Rejoice not because your situation's bad. No, you are full of joy because you know who you are. See, as a Christ follower, you rejoice because God has saved you from your sin, redeemed your lost soul, and he promises you an eternal future without any despair that will never change. That's how you rejoice in the Lord. It'd be ignorant for me to stand up here and say, hey, be glad because your situation's bad. No. We don't get happy when we go through bad stuff. No, but we can still be content and satisfied because our joy is in Christ who is our rock, he's our fortress, and he is our refuge. That's where our joy comes from. Our joy comes from the stability that is only found in an unchanging God. Paul actually gives us good comfort at the end of verse five, look at it, he says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. In some translations it says the Lord is near. This literally, as a Christian, God is near to you right now. There's never anything that you face that God is far from you. Psalm 46, one says, God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He's always there. It's not he may be present. He is always ever-present. Paul says God is near to you, but this has another meaning. It also means that Jesus could come back at any point, and therefore we have expectant hope. Knowing that Jesus could come back to take us to an eternal home without despair gives us hope in the midst of whatever it is that we're facing. 
See, Paul tells us what this is like earlier in Philippians in chapter 3. He says, as Christians, we, we have a different hope than the rest of the world because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Essentially, he's so powerful that when he comes back and he takes you home, he will change your body to be like his. He will change your mind. He will change you to be completely perfect. And Paul says, because you have that hope as a Christian, you can rejoice. Paul says, rejoice Always, when things are bad, you rejoice in the Lord. But it also means when things are good, you rejoice in the Lord. See, it's easy for us to, when we go through a tough situation, to think, man, like, I, I need God right now. I need to pray. I need to spend time with him. But what about when things are good? What about when you're not in a dire situation? Sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of when things are good, you rejoice simply because things are good. I saw a phenomenal example of this this past week. Many of you may have seen the same thing. Last Sunday night, um, I got home from youth um, about 7.30, just in time to see the very end of the New Orleans Saints-Minnesota Vikings game. It was an amazing game. Uh, I'm, I'm from Old Ford Elementary, and our football team was always the Vikings, so I kind of pulled for them, you know, so I'm watching them. And, uh, and I got home. The Vikings were up by one. Drew Brees leads his team down the field for the Saints. They go up then by two. Minnesota turns right around, comes down and kicks a field goal, which they haven't done in the playoffs in multiple years. They kick a field goal to go up. Here it goes again. Drew Brees from the New Orleans Saints leads them right down the field. They kick a field goal. There's like 25 seconds left. Very little time on the clock. And there's this quarterback. His name's Case Keenum. He came to Minnesota to be the third-string quarterback. And then their first two got hurt. So all season, he has been starting for them when he was supposed to be a third-string quarterback, and he has led them to a 13-3 and record, which is really good. And he gets the ball with just, like I said, maybe 25 or 30 seconds left. Throws a pass, gets them part of the way down the field. They need about another 30 yards to, to get a chance at a field goal, which could, could win it. Well, he, It's third and 10. He gets the ball, throws it. When he throws it, his wide receiver, Stephon Diggs, catches the ball. And as he catches the ball, the, the, the poor safety from the New Orleans Saints just whiffs the tackle, just misses. And Stephon Diggs turns around, and typically he would want to get out of bounds so that they can have a field goal try. But when he turns around, he sees that the field is wide open. So what does he do? He takes off, he runs, scores a walk-off touchdown to send the Minnesota Vikings to the NFC Championship today. I think the greatest play in all of NFL history, I know some of you old school people think that it would be something from back in the day. That's the greatest play in the history of the NFL. And they're on the field. Minnesota Vikings uh, players are going crazy. They interview several of them, um, and they're just saying, this is the greatest thing in the world, the greatest day in my life. I can't believe it. This was so amazing. And finally, the reporter gets over to Case Keenum, the quarterback, and, and he's just smiling. His, his grin is, is so large. He's smiling. And the reporter's like, how does this feel? And Case says, man, I don't even have any words right now. This is amazing. This is so good. And the reporter says, yeah, this is, this is a great moment, isn't it? And he says, it's about the third best moment of my life. And I, I started turning the TV up. I was like, hang on a second. Third best, I got to hear what this guy says next. I mean, just as calm as could be. And he says, yeah, the, the, the first was when I gave my life to Christ. And then the second one was, was when I married my wife. And, and this is probably third behind those two. 
And the reporter was so caught off guard that he was like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, since then, that clip has been taken off of YouTube, I think due to, to copyright reasons, but uh, it, it, was, it was taken off. Um, but Case Keenum, in the best play of his life, maybe the best play ever in the history of the NFL, could have rejoiced because he just made the greatest play ever. And instead, in that moment when his life is great, when his life is good, what does he find his joy in? I'm a follower of Christ, I marry my wife, and oh yeah, I just made the greatest play in NFL history. <laughs> he finds his joy there. In the same way, I imagine this is speculation. I'll talk about not doing that later, but I'll do it right now. In the same way, Case Keenum, if they had lost, would have probably said, it's a bad day, but it's not the worst. Why he rejoices in the Lord. Though his situation was great, where does he find his joy? Not in the great situation, but in Christ. So there are some of you in here this morning, and right now your circumstance is just the opposite. It's uncertain. It's uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. Your situation's bad, but you can rejoice because Jesus is at hand. He still sits on the throne of heaven, and, no heaven and nothing catches him off guard. Jesus never says, uh-oh. No. He's still near. Or you may be in here this morning, and you've heard the worst news that you could ever hear this week or this month. And you need to know today that Christ is still with you no matter what. If you're in him, you, your identity is in him, and that doesn't change. If you're in here this morning and, and everything in your life is great, don't fall into the trap of rejoicing because life's good. You can thank God for what he's doing, but rejoice simply in him. And let me just say this too. This is one of the greatest ways that Christians can live an evangelistic lifestyle because when people see our responses to the circumstances and adverse situations that we face and they see that we still have joy, that speaks to people more so than any other worldview. I teach world religions at, at, at a community college and there's no other religion or worldview that offers joy in the midst of the worst possible situation. Only Christ. Paul says rejoice always. The second thing he says is pray. Pray. Put a little dash or parentheses, pray and don't be anxious. Pray and don't be anxious. He, he continues talking about overcoming anxiety and he simply says, don't be anxious. Now, if you're like me, when I, when I read this years ago, I thought, Paul, okay, man, how can I not be anxious when I'm anxious, right? You, you say, don't be anxious, but I'm anxious. So how can I not be? Um, he tells us how. He says, one word, he says, pray. See, we're to replace our anxiety with, with prayerfulness. And you think, man, I, I do that all the time. I, I pray. Let me just say, prayer is not just throwing up words to God and hoping that you magically feel better. That's not what prayer is. Taking your request to God is needfully, which, which, which means humbly, needfully saying, God, I can't handle this. I can't handle what I'm facing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but guess what? I know that you can, and I am, as many people always say when you're going through a certain situation, God, I'm giving this over to you. Many times, if you're ever talking to somebody, they say, you need to give that to God, and if you're like me, you've wondered before, what, how, how do I do that? What does that mean to give to God? It comes down to one word, and that word is trust. See, prayer is trusting God with your situation. Not yourself. Prayer is trusting God with your situation. 
This is so difficult for, for many of us because we like to have control over our situations. If you're like me, I, I love having control. If you're like me, you, you pray this way. God, you have this. God, you got it. I'm giving it over. I'm talking to you about it, um, but I'm still going to try to rack my brain and figure out a way to fix the outcome immediately. That's often what we do. We say, God, you, you're going to take this, but I'm still trying to figure it out. And I think I may have a good solution. When you do that, you know what you're doing? You're being a backseat driver. And you know what? Nobody likes a backseat driver. And for those of you who like to backseat drive, it's true. People don't like you being in the car with them. Okay, it's, it's that true. They don't. Why? Because a backseat driver hands the keys to somebody, and when they hand the keys to them, they're saying, hey, you have control of this vehicle. All the while, they still feel like they have control. If you've uh, ridden with people who do that, it is the most frustrating thing in the world. Parents, if, if you have teenagers or, or have had them and you've given them your keys, there is probably a spot in the passenger side floorboard where there's a dent, where there's almost a hole through there, where you've tried to press your foot through that floor to put on the brakes. Why? Because you're, you're being a, a backseat driver. You're doing that. The difference is when you, when you hand over your keys to an unexperienced teenager, you probably have reason to worry. But when you hand over the keys to your life, to God. You're not handing over that situation to a teenager who's never touched a steering wheel. You're, you're handing the keys of your life. You're handing your worry. You're handing your, your broken situation, your fear. You're handing your inability over to the one who didn't just create the steering wheel. He created the car, the road, the world, and the universe. When you are entrusting your situation over to God, you can finally rest. If you've ever had a project at your job or in school and um, you, you, you feel overwhelmed because you've got so much going on and then all of a sudden your boss or your teacher adds to your plate something else. If this has ever happened to you and somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know what? I see that you've got a lot going on. Let me take care of that. Like, let me, let me take that off your plate. You know what you can do whenever somebody says, I'll take the responsibility for that, that big project? You know what you do? You sit back in your chair and you go like this. You can, you can, finally, you can finally rest. See, when, when you get in a situation where you don't know the outcome, you're, yours and my, my finite minds, we, we begin to get anxious because we can't figure it out. We can't figure it out. But when you entrust your situation to the God who knew before, who knows now, and he knows the best plan for your future, you know what you can do? You can rest. When I'm saying the word rest, I'm talking about the word peace that's in verse 7. You can have peace. See, it's easy to, to think that what we want in a, in a situation is to know the outcome. But you know what? Many times knowing the outcome of our situation would only cause more anxiety. Instead, you know what we really want in the middle of our storm, our battle, our situation? We want peace. We're looking for peace. You know what's so good about verse 7? Paul says, take your request to God. Let him know what's going on. And the first word of verse 7 is and. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding. Meaning that when you entrust God with your situation, um, God will give you peace. 
It doesn't say he might. It doesn't say maybe he will, maybe if he's in a good mood, maybe if you've been a good person. When you entrust God and say, God, I know that if you are able to create me, you can sustain me. If you created the world, whatever my situation is, is nothing you can't handle. You know what you can do? You can rest and have peace. And when we don't entrust God with our situation, we rob ourselves of the faith-building blessing that God wants to have for us. We rob ourselves of experiencing God's peace. Some of you may wonder even, why, why do I bring something before God if he's already supposed to know? Like, shouldn't God just go and handle it? Here's the deal. Bringing our request before God shows our utter dependence on him, and we're entrusting our care into his hands. It's, it's more for for us than it is for him. We're coming before God saying, God, I need you. You've got this. Please take it. And it says when we do that, when we pray, we're to pray with thanksgiving. We're to pray with thanksgiving. No, notice uh, it says that we should pray with thanksgiving. Someone who is thankful and someone who is proud can't exist simultaneously. Because if we're proud, you know what we don't want to do? Let God know that we need him. But when we say, God, I, I want to thank you that I deserve nothing, but through Christ you have given me life, and I don't deserve anything that you give me, but I want to thank you for what you have done, and I need to bring this before you, that's how we're to pray. Maybe you could say it this way, pray and let God worry. He's not going to, but we shouldn't hold on to it. Instead, we entrust it to God. Jesus would say in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus promises there, Paul promises later to give us peace. You see, God's peace guards against anxiety and despair. It guards against it. The opposite of Anxiety is peace, and Paul says we've got to replace anxiety with expectant prayer. And then the third thing he says we're to do is think. Think. Simply think. Think the right thoughts. Overcoming anxiety begins in our minds. It begins in our minds. It's knowing the right things despite what you feel. Verses 8 and 9 share with us how we must begin to think and keep from being anxious. In other words, the Bible is trying to give us the right Mental and spiritual outlook. Paul says, whatever is true, what is truth? The opposite of false. The opposite of speculation. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable. Those things. Think on those things. See, many times, you know what we do? We, we could read it this way. Finally, whatever is untrue, dishonorable, unjust, impure, unlovely, uncommendable, if there is anything not morally excellent, if there is anything unworthy of praise, let's think on that. That's often what we do, and we end up thinking that way instead of being in accordance with the way God wants us to think and think on the true, commendable, perfect, just, honorable, morally right things. You know how we begin to do that is, is by doing as Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart. We begin to put God's word in our minds, and our hearts. We begin to think the way God thinks. See, this is all about centering our minds on what is right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, if you're a Christian, we have the mind of Christ. 
you're a follower of Christ in here this morning, you have the mind of Christ, but many times we tend to think and dwell on what is wrong or untrue or speculation or irrationality. We're influenced so much by what is not true, by what is not right, and by what is not honorable that we must take time to hide God's word in our heart. We need to fill our minds with the things that inspire the worship of God and service to others. Then verse 9 takes us from simply thinking to putting the right thoughts into practice. When our mind is changed, what happens next? Our actions begin to change. That's, that's just a natural concept. Our mind changes, our actions begin to change. And when we begin to, to change into what Paul is saying we should be, you know what happens? Christ begins to shine in this dark world. Christ begins to be glorified even despite your circumstances. See, the Bible is very clear about how to overcome anxiety, but I want to give us three very practical takeaway points that, that, that we can leave with this morning of how to implement what Paul is saying. Here's the first one. Overcome anxiety by spending unhurried time with God. Overcome anxiety by spending unhurried time with God. One way anxiety begins to creep in is if you aren't spending unhurried, unhindered time with God. And when you do that, you know what happens? You begin relying on yourself. You begin relying on someone else, and it's impossible to know God's peace. And this is one reason why spending time with the Lord is so important. When we spend unhurried time with God, our, our hearts can be settled, our minds can be settled, and we go through our day-to-day -day centering our mind on what is right, what is true, what is honorable. Second one is overcome anxiety by asking the right question. When a situation arises, it's, uh, it, it's easy to speculate and have conversations in your mind. If you're like me, you've done that before. You're, you're thinking of a situation in your mind, and you have just talked it out in your mind to that person, with that person. You, you've, you've pretty much had an all-day conversation in your mind with nobody but yourself. But it's caused you to think irrationally. It's, it's caused you to think on what is not true. So the question that you've got to ask is, is what I am thinking true? Is what I'm thinking true? Not could it be true? Not maybe, maybe it could be true. Is what I'm thinking true? That's one way to overcome anxiety. The third one is this. You overcome anxiety by remembering that if you can trust God with your eternal soul, you can also trust him with your current problem. If he is large enough to take care of your eternal soul, the one thing that lasts forever, if he can take care of that, he can take care of today's issue. He's got it. You see, and, and in all this, we, you and I, we, we look for peace in this situation. And I want to close this morning with this. If you go back to verse 7, verse 7 of Philippians 4 tells us where we find our peace. Paul says, the peace of God which surpasses our ability to understand will guard our hearts and minds, where? In Christ Jesus. So you must remember that our peace ultimately comes from our hope in Christ. Why? Because in the midst of his worst and darkest moment, Jesus began to sweat drops of blood because of the anxiety of what he knew he was about to face. 
He, in his darkest hour, Jesus' friends abandoned him. He was wrongly accused. And he began to feel his father turning his back on him. In Jesus' darkest moment, he was thinking of you and me because he continued to the cross so that you and I can be assured that when we face our darkest moment, guess who's never going to leave us? Jesus. Why? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, please take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this punishment, this pain, the physical, the emotional pain. I don't want to face it. But then he said, not my will, but yours, showing that if, if in his darkest hour, he won't turn his back on us, guess what? In our darkest hour, he's never going to turn his back on us then. See, guys, the cross proves that if Jesus was willing to go through what he did then, which was literally hell on earth, he will in no way abandon you now. He never once broke a commandment. He went to the cross, paid the penalty of your sin and mine, and through his death-defeating resurrection, he relieved your greatest enemy, your greatest anxiety, which is death and fear of the unknown. Though you may be in here this morning and you face uncertainty, your peace comes from trusting Jesus even in the midst of your situation. And then there may be those of you in here this morning and you've never experienced the ultimate peace of God which comes through salvation in Christ. You're sitting here this morning and your soul is in a state of unrest because you know if you were to meet God today and you stood before him, there would be no peace. He would say, I don't know you. I created you, but, but you've chosen your own life. You've done your own deal. And you know there will be no peace between you and God. You've yet to make things right with God, and your opportunity to do so is today. There's no reason to wait. You, you do so by admitting your sin, believing that Jesus died to take away your sin, and confessing Jesus not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. There are two ways you can respond this morning. Our staff will be up here. <clears throat> As we sing this song, there are two ways you can respond. The first one is if you're dealing, if you're dealing with, with a situation, you don't know the outcome, it's causing you anxiety, it's causing you nervousness, it's causing you stress, then you can sing this song, which talks about how Jesus has us. He will keep us. He's never going to let go of us. You can sing that song in faith if you need to respond by having someone pray for you. We'll be up here this morning. Or if you're in here this morning and you don't know Christ, this morning is your opportunity to know him. It's your opportunity to say, yeah, I I know that I'm a sinner and I'm choosing to follow Christ today and have him forgive my sin. So if you would, let's stand. Let's sing, let's worship, respond as you need.